0: C.B.H.D.D. is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: He speaks with his attorneys, and his attorneys tell him, you know, look, we, we didn't think that they were going to convict you. you know, one of them said... I think this is a hanging jury, meaning uh, not like a hung jury, but a jury that wants to see you hang.
0: This is Georgia Today, a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. It's Friday, July 31st. I'm your host, Steve Fennessy. My guest is Josh Sharp, a reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Josh's investigation into the 1985 murder of husband and wife Harold and Thelma Swain at a rural church in southeastern Georgia has now led to the freeing of the man convicted in the case and implicated a suspect who was initially cleared years ago. I started by asking Josh what happened that night of Monday, March 11th, 1985.
1: So Monday, March 11th, 1985, there were about a dozen people inside Rising Daughter Baptist Church. At some point during, uh, during the night, you know, roughly around 9 p.m. is what's generally agreed upon, a stranger showed up.
0: The town is still in a state of shock. Almost everyone in Spring Bluff knew the Swains. They can't believe this has happened.
1: It was a Monday night Bible study and mission meeting. And it just so happened that Harold Swain, a deacon at Rising Daughter Baptist Church, was the only man there.
0: Vanzola Williams was leaving the church when a man with long wand hair approached her and pointed to Swain, saying he wanted to speak to him. Williams went on her way and left the two talking. And before I could get the car door open, I heard the shots, four shots.
1: Harold's wife, Thelma, uh, was also there, and she ran to her husband's aid. And when she got there to the vestibule, she was shot, and both of them fell dead in the vestibule.
0: Police are just as baffled.
1: We don't have a motive at this time. We feel
0: like the indi- uh, the individual might have been uh, transient. And this is a predominantly black church, correct? Yes, in, I should.
1: In, okay. Yeah. So, the, so the stranger was white. Um, okay. every, everyone in the church was black. This was a pre- mm-hmm. predominantly black church.
0: Did did people get a decent look at him?
1: It's sort of it's sort of complex. Uh, some of them. It ended up being that there were four women who who said who felt that they had seen him well enough that they could assist uh, a sketch artist in making a composite sketch of what the killer looked like the women were generally happy with the way the sketch looked it seemed to take some parts of what they each remembered uh, but there was one woman who did not think it looked like the killer but this sketch uh, was printed out and distributed all over southeast georgia it was put up in gas stations and it you know it ran in the papers it ran in the papers up here in atlanta it ran in the papers in uh, jacksonville and and on tv and uh, you know it really really got out there and that's actually how dennis perry first heard about the case he was working with a friend of his and his friend was reading the newspaper and he saw the sketch of the killer and he turned to Dennis and said that said something to the effect of wow this guy looks just like you you've got a twin here um and but it was funny to this guy because he knew that Dennis couldn't have done it he knew because because this guy drove Dennis to and from work every day he had driven Dennis to and from work just a couple days earlier when the when the crime happened, so he knew Dennis couldn't have done it. He remembered Monday, you know, whatever day whatever day of the week it was. Um, so it was just funny, but it, it turned out to you know not be funny at all in hindsight.
0: So at what point did Dennis kind of get it under the radar of investigators? Because this case dragged on for years before there was an arrest.
1: It did. He came on the radar in 1988 when a local resident who wished to remain anonymous came forward with a tip that said something about uh, someone had been uh, growing some marijuana and Harold Swain had found the marijuana and, and was thinking about going to the police about it or would go to the police about it. And Dennis had some sort of he, he was friends with the person who was growing this pot and and maybe that's why he would have attacked, um, attacked Harold Swain. So the detectives uh, could not find any evidence to suggest that that tip was grounded in reality at all. So not
0: long after he got onto the radar of investigators, he fell off of it.
1: Be safe, they had a picture of him, and they put it in a photo spread uh, with, I believe, either four or five other uh, faces, and showed it to the woman who had encountered the killer in the vestibule and asked if she recognized anyone, and she didn't. Uh, when she didn't recognize anyone, they considered Dennis Perry cleared, and they, they pretty much forgot about him. Then in 1988, later in 1988, after, after they investigate Dennis Perry, Unsolved Mysteries comes to town. This is great for investigators working a cold case. The
0: quiet sanctity of Rising Daughters Church was violated by the brutal double murder of Harold and Thelma
1: Swain. It also gives them so much more work to do. You know, they spend day and night uh, every day, pretty much, as they, as they recall running down lead after lead after lead
0: three years later the brutal murders of harold and thelma swain remain a mystery were they just random killings committed by a violent transient or were they a planned and premeditated murder and if so why
1: the, you know they had i think they said over you know certainly hundreds of leads from from unsolved mysteries so it took them quite a while i mean you know they're working on them for several years
0: Who are the primary investigators at this point? Are, is, it, is it local? Is it state? Is it both?
1: It's both. It's, it's a collaboration between two men, primarily. Now, there are other people who help, but the primary investigators are then Chief Camden County Sheriff's Deputy Butch Kennedy.
0: It's not easy to pass by here without thinking about it. Or waking up at night and thinking about it. I see them back in the church laying on the floor. Nobody just took them away.
1: And his counterpart from the GBI, GBI agent Joe Gregory.
0: The Swains, highly respected people, very active in the community, are just not the type of person that uh, would be the victim of a murder plot.
1: Seven years after the murder, seven terrible years in Butch Kennedy's life where he spent, uh, you know, every day agonizing over this and every day working on this with... Joe Gregory, you know, these guys are just driving themselves crazy trying to solve this case. Kennedy has long blamed himself for not solving the case.
0: You hate yourself Mm -hmm. for not being able to do what what you're supposed to do. You're you're supposed to solve these things. You're supposed to make them right. You're supposed to do that. And when you don't and you can't, you're just so disappointed.
1: And then Butch Candy leaves, and Joe Gregory is still at the GBI, and he still continues to work the case. Uh, and then about 1998, um, one day, Joe Gregory is on the way to uh, a scene of, of a uh, of, of another case that he's got to work, and he has a terrible car wreck and breaks his back and ends up having to retire. About that time, maybe a little bit before that, uh, then Camden County Sheriff Bill Smith decides to hire a special investigator to reinvestigate the Swain case, and he picks this guy Dale Bundy, who had previously resigned from the sheriff's office, but now uh, Dale Bundy is coming back in 1998 uh, to be the point person on the Swain murders, and his 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 job set his job description is to. Investigate the murders. That's what you do.
0: I mean, this is a cold case. It's a very cold I mean, case, yeah. It's been years. It's been 13 yeah.
1: years. He's just given a year to solve this case that for 13 years uh, several other very experienced investigators could not solve and drove themselves about half crazy trying to solve it. He's, he's given a year. And... Within the first two weeks, he's identified Dennis Perry as his main suspect. He's arrested in January of 2000. This is after he's indicted on two counts of murder.
0: 15 years after Harold and Thelma Swain were murdered, Camden County Sheriff Bill Smith has even more reason to think about them. That's because the couple's alleged killer is now behind
1: bars. I always thought that somewhere in these files there was the clue that would sort of unravel the whole story. And I've got to thank Mr. Bundy again for bringing that information to light.
0: How does a man go from having what appears to be, you know, a, a relatively bulletproof alibi to being convicted in a court of murder? How does it go from from point A to point B
1: there? Nearly all of the documentation from about Perry's alibi goes missing from the case file. The jurors would later say that they were were impressed by the testimony of Jane Beaver. Jane Beaver is Dennis Perry's ex-girlfriend's mother. And Jane Beaver testifies that uh, Dennis Perry told her a few weeks before the murders, a few weeks after the breakup, that he is going to go kill Harold Swain because Dennis had asked Harold for money— and Harold had laughed in Dennis's face. And unfortunately, the jury didn't know a lot of things about this case. You know, They, they did not know that Jane Beaver, the star witness in the whole thing, was, was soon to be paid $12,000 in reward money for her testimony. And the jury didn't know that because the defense hadn't been told that by the state, uh, as they should have been. And then uh, we have eyewitness testimony from a woman who was in the church when when the murders happened.
0: So walk us through that that trial and and what it was that the jury heard that convinced them that he was guilty in the murders of, of this couple.
1: Well the jury heard was was from a few different key witnesses. One was Cora Fisher, the woman who had been in the church and fainted that night. Uh, she she testified via deposition because she was ailing in a nursing home. And it, her, her testimony her testimony was read aloud for the court. And she, in that testimony, identified Dennis Perry as the killer. She said, that is the man. I recognize that man is the one who, who came to the church and shot the couple. She also is shown a photograph of Donnie Barentine. Donnie Barentine is a former drug trafficker, who was considered a suspect in the case for many years by the initial investigators, and she also and she says that he's the killer, and we only know for sure that there was one per, there there was one person in the church, not two, so that that tells you that obviously she she's having some trouble, uh, but for, for whatever reason uh, that doesn't bother the jury enough uh, to sway them. The jury also hears from Donnie Barentine. He he's Uh, testifies and he says you know I don't know anything about this I didn't do it and and that that essentially is 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 the case but for testimony from Dale Bundy and Dale Bundy testifies about a an interrogation of Dennis Perry that took place on the day that he was arrested and it was Dale Bundy and three other investigators interrogating Dennis Perry and they asked him what Dennis would later describe as, or, or what Dennis's attorneys would later describe as leading questions. You know, if you could undo what happened, would you? And he says, yes. You know, D- do you think the gun could have went off by accident? And he says, yes. Uh, things like that. And, you know, what his attorneys have essentially argued is that they were trying to, you know, get him to confess. Uh, and but the, But Dennis shuts down this interview by saying, y'all are trying to put words in my mouth. And only then did one of the investigators ask Dennis if he could turn on a tape recorder and record the interrogation. So none of that interrogation is is recorded. All we have is the recollections of the interrogators and the report, the one report that was written about what was said. And then on the witness stand, Dale Bundy testifies that Dennis said he was at the church on the night of the murders that he was at the church. He says that Dennis admitted that to him. And and this is not even this is not in the report. And the other investigators who were there who were there during the the interrogation testify that they don't remember that. They don't remember him saying that. Um, but here Dale Bundy said it on the stand and then once he says it on the stand it's admit, it it's, it's evidence and then Pro- prosecutor John B Johnson keeps repeating it. Dennis Perry admitted that he was at the church. He said he was at the church. He said he was at the church. What alibi? He said he was at the church.
0: How long did this tri- trial take? 4 days. 4, Four days. days. And the jury was out for how long before they reached the verdict? Do you, do you know?
1: It was not long. It was less than a day. Okay. Yeah. Less yeah, than
0: I, a day and they come back with a, with a guilty verdict.
1: This is a capital case. This is the 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 state is seeking the death penalty in this case and Dennis he speaks with his attorneys and his attorneys tell him, you know, look, we, we didn't think that they were going to convict you. But we can't, you know, we can't make any promises here that they, they you know, one of them said, I think this is a hanging jury, meaning uh, not like a hung jury, but a jury that wants to see you hang. So Dennis Perry decides he, he would rather live than die and he takes the deal. He sentenced to uh, two life sentences.
0: When Josh started looking into this story, it had already been exhaustively examined. But there was one aspect of the case that he zeroed in on, and that is what changed everything. That's when we come back. This is Georgia Today. If you like hearing the news from around the state here on Georgia Today, you'll probably like hearing how Georgia's agriculture economy feeds the country and the world on a fork in the road. I'm David Zelsky, and on the Fork in the Road podcast, we feature stories from Georgia's farmers, fishermen, merchants, artisans, chefs, and others who help provide Georgia-grown products to folks in the Peach State and beyond. Find it online at gpb.org slash podcast or download it on your favorite podcast platform. We're back with Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. My guest is Josh Sharp, an AJC reporter who spent A year examining the case of Dennis Perry. So when Dennis Perry began his prison sentence in 2003, he ended up divorcing his first wife and then reconnecting with a woman he'd known from earlier in his life. And they ended up actually getting married while he was in custody, no?
1: Uh, Dennis gets a letter from a woman named Brenda, who he'd sort of known in passing from the Camden County area. Then, you know, they exchange letters and they, they really get along well, it seems, and then they, they decide one day to talk on the phone, and Dennis has this great opening line, uh, he says, do you know who this is? And she says, who's this? And he says, this is the rest of your life. I had a chance to speak with Brenda about the connection she's formed with Dennis. What is it that y'all, you and Dennis, um, sort of connect on? What do, y'all, what do y'all talk about? Everything. We talk about fishing. We talk mm-hmm. about life. We
0: talk about what happened to me at work. hmm what he goes through during a week,
1: yeah.
0: you know, sometimes we talk about nothing.
1: Mm-hmm. We
0: just sit there. And, you know, you. and for me, and he says it's that way for him, for me, when I'm on my way there, I have so many things I want to tell him, so mm-hmm. many things I want to tell him, personal things. Yeah. But when I get there, none of that matters. It's just being there. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the way it is for yeah. me.
1: They end up getting married in 2009 uh, while he's in prison uh, and they've been together ever since. Here she is speaking last week during a bond hearing.
0: I would visit him every weekend. I visit him every weekend since 2007. And uh, I would spend the weekends with him when he was at r When he was transferred to coffee, I went, I go every weekend up until the pandemic. And then when the pandemic happened, we relied on uh, the video, they had a video session that you could have a video visit, we did that, and he calls me continuously.
1: So so they're trying to make the best of it, but it is enough for them, amazingly, through all that time. They become each other's, you know, just about closest friend, and just about the most important person in the world to each other.
0: Josh, when did you first hear about this case? When did it get on your radar? When did you start becoming interested in it as as a reporter?
1: It seemed of interest to me partly because there had been a podcast uh, that that studied the case, and that was a podcast called Undisclosed. In
0: 2018, we covered the case of Dennis Perry in Season 3 of our podcast. Dennis is now serving two life sentences for the murder of Harold and Thelma Swain, Shot down.
1: They were doing, you know, taking a holistic look at the entire case, but as far as alternative suspects go, the one they focused on most was Donnie Barentine. They mentioned sort of in passing a few times this guy named Eric Spar. In fact, a version of the composite was done up to match Spar's facial hair, and, yeah, he could be another one of the dozens of dead ringers who looked just like that drawing. Who had allegedly um, told his ex-wife's family that he killed... The Swains, who he referred to by the N-word, uh, and that he was going to kill his ex-wife's family too. And this was on tape; uh, they had recorded him saying this over the phone, and they'd given it to the, and, the, and they told the sheriff's office about it. And as I'm listening to the podcast, I'm thinking, "Wait, wait, wait. Well, what about that guy?"
0: So this is a this is another suspect that that is mentioned, but you say. Pretty much only in passing or, or so in, on, in the undisclosed podcast yeah. and there's something there's something about him that that kind of strikes a chord yeah
1: there is and that is that according to the police records he told his first and second wives that he had committed the murders calem head is one of eric Spar's sons i asked calem what his mother told him about eric she once told me about uh, how he admitted that he had uh murdered Two people in the church, and
0: uh, they actually had, her on, had him on recording, saying that you know he had admitted to killing the two people, and that he wouldn't think twice of knocking somebody else off if he needed to.
1: Eric Spar maintains his innocence. He says he has nothing to do with the church murders. I, ho- I hope y'all find out who
0: actually did it. I had nothing to do with this. I want it to stay where it is, gone. You know, uh, I don't even know where the church is. Even though I'm from over there and I know the area, I've never been to the church. Don't know where it is, don't care to.
1: The game-changing part of my reporting is that I determined that the person who called police to vouch for Spar that he was at work when the murders happened, that person gave a fake name. That person gave fake details, personal details, fake social, fake birthday. Fake address, fake home number, fake work number. All of it is fake. Investigators reopened the 1985 case of a husband and wife murdered inside a Camden County church after new DNA evidence was uncovered. IT investigator Zach Lashway examines the evidence that could prove this man's innocence. In February, Eric Spar's mother voluntarily gave a DNA sample to Georgia Innocence Project investigators. The DNA was compared to hairs found on the eyeglasses at the scene more than 35 years ago. It was a match. A lab concluded the hairs could have only come from less than one half of 1% of the U.S. population, and Spar was in that grouping. It was so amazing that after. Thirty-five years. Finally, finally, there is some solid evidence in this case.
0: And w- how does Eric Spar react when you tell him this?
1: Uh, well, I call him. I'm
0: not okay. going to sit here and go into all this. You got your DNA thing. That was you that came
1: by. And got well, it one. wasn't. It wasn't me. It was, but listen, or somebody you sent. Look, I didn't. Be, I want to be left alone. But let me tell you something, Eric. The DNA test was done by the Georgia Innocence Project, and it showed that, you, that your mother's hair matched the DNA found on a pair of glasses next to the bodies. And I want to see how you can explain that to me. Look, I have no idea. I don't have any glasses missing. Leave me alone. That is the last time I spoke with Eric Spar.
0: A Glenn County judge could decide today whether a man who says he
1: was wrongfully convicted of killing a couple inside a Camden County, Georgia church will get a new trial. He Dennis granted Perry. the motion for a new trial, which means that Dennis Perry stands today not convicted anymore in this case. His conviction is overturned. But
0: but he is still under indictment?
1: Essentially, the posture of the case goes goes right back to the way it was before the trial. It's as if the trial didn't happen, legally speaking. Uh, Dennis Perry is still charged in the case and the DA's office is going to have to decide whether or not to retry him. All of the experts I've spoken to say that a retrial would be extremely difficult, you know, when, you, when you've got DNA pointing to another suspect. Um, because Perry is still charged, the conviction being overturned did not mean that he would automatically be released. Uh, he, has to, he had to request bond. There was a hearing last week about Perry's bond motion.
0: the right, uh, court's going to grant uh, an OR recognizance bond on these charges in CR 0363063.
1: The judge there granted him a, a signature bond, which essentially, you know, doesn't have to put any money down. He just just walks out on the promise that if he needs to come back to court, he will. Uh, so, so then uh, when that order is filed granting him bond. The Department of Corrections starts readying him for release. Here's Dennis Perry moments after he was released from prison. I feel good. <laughs> free. I feel free. I uh, told my wife I was going to pray myself out of here.
0: And that's what I've done. And no word uh, from Eric Sparr. There, he is He's not been charged. He's not been uh, arrested or in, no, in any case. No, Eric Sparrow faces
1: uh, no charges in, in any case that I'm aware of. When the DNA evidence came back, I knew Perry's getting out. It's just a matter of when. And Sparr is going to have some explaining to do. I knew this was going to happen. I just didn't know when.
0: My thanks to Josh Sharp, a reporter at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Two days after Judge Scarlett threw out Dennis Perry's conviction, Eric Sparr's mother, Gladys, was found dead in her southeast Georgia home. Though an autopsy was performed, no results have been announced, and officials have yet to say what a cause or manner of death may be. I'm Steve Fennessy. This is Georgia Today, a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. You can subscribe to our show anywhere you get podcasts. Have a story idea? Connect with us at georgiatoday at gpb.org. Our producer is Sean Powers. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.